everyone to Osteobites. My name is Christina Iptoma, and I am mom to Osteo Angel Dillon and the Director of Scientific Programs for MIB Agents. And today on Osteobites, we are talking with Dr. Vishu Abutu from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and he'll be discussing a phase one, two study of ZNC3 plus gemcitabine in relapsed or refractory osteosarcoma. It's a new early phase clinical trial for patients with metastatic disease targeting the DNA damage repair pathway. And thank you to our panelist, Mia, who is our Junior Advisory Board Vice President. Thanks, Mia, for joining us today. So we're super excited to have Dr. Avutu on Osteobites today. Dr. Avutu attained his MD from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School and began his research endeavors with the Pediatric Oncology Education Program at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, finding a passion for working with adolescents and young adults. Dr. Vitu matched to the Internal Medicine Pediatric Residency at Harvard's Brigham and Women's Boston Children's Hospitals. In addition to serving as chief resident, Dr. Vitu helped develop and launch the Center for Adolescent and Young Adult Oncology at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. He then completed his medical oncology fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. He is co-founder of MSK's Adolescent and Young Adult Oncology Program, where his work has garnered MSK's Patient and Family-Centered Care Grant Initiative and the Young Investigator Award from the American Society of Clinical Oncology. He's an assistant attending in the Departments of Medicine and Pediatrics, and he cares for AYAs with sarcomas. And before we get into um, Dr. Vitu's presentation, just wanted to share a couple announcements of um, related to Factor, which we're all very excited about. So registration is now open. I'm gonna be putting the registration link in the chat. Um, it is everybody's favorite osteosarcoma conference. Um, also because it is the only osteosarcoma conference. So um, if you are looking for um, like all the information about osteosarcoma and finding community, um, then this is a place for you to go. June 23rd to 25th in San Diego, we have a great lineup of speakers for our scientific panels, including Dr. Obitu. So um, he'll be there if you have more questions to ask about this trial. And um, we also have a Warrior Headquarters HQ, which is free to those 18 and under. It's a great place for osteo-warriors to meet, hang out, do fun activities together. Um, I should say siblings are also um, invited to HQ. Um, and we'll put the links in chat for everything you need to know about Factor and the registration link. And um, for any clinicians and scientists who do not have institutional grant support to attend Factor, but would like to come, we um, have a family fund travel uh, award this year. It's a grant up to $2,000 to cover conference registration fees and travel expenses. And these awards are sponsored by family funds. Um, who are osteosarcoma patients and families who raise funds in honor of an osteo warrior or osteo angel. And so um, these awards are really meaningful because these are families sponsoring our scientists to attend. So the deadline is tomorrow, April 8th. Um, it's a quick, easy application. So if you're interested in attending Factor and don't have institutional support, please consider applying and we'll put those links in the chat as well. Um, so. Enough of me. Mia, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Of course. Thank you so much, Christina. Uh, my name is Mia Sandino. As Christina said earlier, I am the Vice President of MIB's Junior Advisory Board for 2022. I am thrilled to be here today. 
And I'm excited to announce that I will be attending UCSB, which is UC Santa Barbara, again this fall um, to continue my pursuit of becoming a clinical psychologist working with AYA cancer patients. So yeah, I'm, th I'm thrilled to be here today. And Dr. Avatu, this is all you. Thank you so much. Uh, first of all, thank you, Christina and Mia. This is an amazing opportunity. So uh, really deep gratitude for the entire Make It Better community for these kind of opportunities. And congratulations, Mia, that's wonderful. We always need good people going into uh, supporting AYAs with cancer. So can't say enough good things about that. Uh, but with that, I'm gonna go ahead and just get started. Uh, please feel free to interrupt at any time. Um, uh, this hopefully won't be too dry, but uh, hopefully we'll have some good information about what we're hoping to do. So uh, as Christina mentioned, this is going to be about a phase one, two study of ZNC3 plus gemcitabine um, in relapsed or refractory osteosarcoma. And this is really osteosarcoma that has come back after treatment or has kind of spread to multiple parts of the body. Um, so first of all, I have no conflicts of uh, interest to disclose, although I do need to mention that this clinical trial is sponsored and funded by Zentalis. Uh, Zentalis is the company responsible for developing and producing ZNC3, uh, which is the oral we one kinase inhibitor that I'll be discussing. Uh, so the presentation itself will be divided into two different parts. The first will touch on some important background concepts into the idea and premise behind this trial itself. And in this second part, I'll actually go through the logistics of what the clinical trial is and what a patient may expect from the trial. Um, so in the background, we're going to take a, a little trip down memory lane back to high school days, back to college days, or perhaps if you're one of our younger members at your current life. Uh, and we're going to talk about the cell cycle, some checkpoints in the cell cycle, really what DNA damage is and the role of the we one kinase. Um, so as you may recall, the cell cycle is a very tightly regulated process in which all of our cells grow and divide throughout our lifetime. It's composed of four different phases. So um, kind of here you can see the G1 phase where the parent cell doubles the machinery of the cell itself. The S phase uh, in red is where we actually double the genetic makeup of the cell, the DNA and the genes that make us who we are. The G2 phase in green is where the, the cell prepares for cell division. And this is kind of one of the last steps it has to really make sure everything is ready for that final step, which is the M phase or mitosis phase, where the parent cell kind of divides itself into two or more daughter cells. But kind of just like our whole bodies, our cells throughout our lifetime are constantly exposed to stresses, what we consider the wear and tear of age of life, if you will. And this leads to damage of the DNA and other components and parts of the cell. Uh, these stresses occur constantly throughout our lifetime. And, and these are basic things, things like exercise, fasting, mental stress, exposure to ultraviolet light, any of those things, um, and, and, and a whole lot of other factors that I'm not even touching on. But our cells, fortunately, over time and through evolution, have developed this machinery that allows them to repair some of this damage that occurs both to DNA and the other components of the cell. And this is really important because we want to make sure that the daughter cells that inherit this DNA do so in a way 
that the DNA itself is healthy. Um, cells have built-in checkpoints all throughout the cell cycle that help them pause and repair whatever damage may have occurred. These checkpoints, you can think of them almost like breaks that allow for the cell to take stock of what is currently going on and make a decision about whether they need to pause and really invest some time in healing um, so that they can ca then carry forward throughout the rest of the cell cycle. Um, I'm gonna focus on two different checkpoints, the G1S checkpoint and the G2M. So I know this slide's a little overwhelming, but don't worry, we're gonna try and break this down a little over the next few slides. So the G1S checkpoint, as its name implies, is really between the first growth phase, G1, and then the S phase or synthesis phase. And it's actually primarily controlled by a protein called P53. The G2M checkpoint on the top of the slide, that occurs between the second growth phase or G2 and the mitosis phase or M phase. It's the final check prior to any cell division. So we have so the cells really invest in that checkpoint to make sure everything is kosher and ready for the next growth, uh, the next uh, division. Maintaining the integrity of the cell health is really, really critical because if cells accumulate too much damage, whether to the DNA or other parts of the cell, they tend to die off because they're too unstable, they're too unhealthy. However, on the other side of this, we also know that certain levels of DNA damage actually lead to the growth and development of cancer. So it's a fine balance between what level of damage exists between death and cancer. The underlying machinery of the cell cycle checkpoint is the DNA damage pathway or the DDR pathway. And this pathway is really responsible for helping cells repair any damage that has occurred to their DNA. So kind of towards the top of the slide in blue is the double helical structure of DNA that the two different strands that contain all our genes. And stresses to this DNA result in a variety of things, but predominantly it's these NICs and these breaks, either single strand, meaning only in one strand, or double strand, meaning in both strands. Um, and sometimes you can have even the two strands not quite match up to one another, what we call mismatches. Cells really have four different paths that they can use to repair DNA damage, and which path cells use really depends on the type of DNA damage that has occurred. So one of the more common pathways, especially when we think about treating cancer, is considered the homologous recombination pathway, and that's kind of towards the right bottom part of the, uh, the slide. Um, it's a very complicated pathway, and we're not going to go into great detail about it, other than just to highlight two genes that I had already kind of mentioned. P53 and, and, and we won. And I'm going to again go into those in a little detail. And this may uh, be a throwback to one of the earlier osteobites when, you know, doc, when Dr. Katie Janeway actually described this machinery almost as a stool with four different legs. And if you take out any one of those legs, you can actually kind of break down the entire machinery of the cell. And cancer actually takes advantage of this to wreak havoc throughout the genetic makeup of the cells. But we also know that anti-cancer drugs themselves also take advantage of these pathways so that we can use those to really attack cancer. Osteosarcoma in particular really relies and takes advantage of the DD DDR pathway and the cell checkpoint to grow, divide, and spread. And that's predominantly because over 90, almost 90% of all osteosarcomas have a mutation in P53, the classic guardian of the genome. Um, P53 actually acts at a number of different parts along the entire cell cycle, including multiple checkpoints, but it's really important in the G1S checkpoint. It's 
P53 itself is really responsible for helping our cells sense DNA damage, and it forces cells to go down this pathway where they either decide to take pause, take stock and heal, or to actually continue on with the cell cycle if there's not significant amounts of, of DNA damage. Um, because osteosarcoma cells often develop mutations in P53 as they grow, we find that by the time someone's gone through a lot of treatment or unfortunately the osteosarcoma itself has come back, almost all of them have these mutations in P53. And we now know that if osteosarcoma has a mutation in P53, sometimes that can actually imply resistance to most chemotherapy. Now, because P53 is often altered in osteosarcoma, the G1S checkpoint, one of the two major checkpoints in the cell cycle, is really dysfunctional. It does not work. And this forces osteosarcoma cells to really rely on the G2M checkpoint to make sure everything is ready for, for ongoing cell cycle. Um, and that's really when osteosarcoma tries to repair itself. The G2M checkpoint itself is primarily regulated by the We1 kinase. Uh, We1 itself actually uh, regulates another protein, CDK1, and that's really the key driver from G2 to M. Um, by activating We1, cells are forced to pause at this checkpoint, and by turning off We1, we actually disable this break and cells go straight from G2 to M without having a chance to repair their cells. So OS cells, because their G1S cell cycle checkpoint is already dysfunctional, what they do is they actually ramp up uh, the amount of V1 that's around and the uh, activity of V1. So this allows osteosarcoma cells to force cells to pause in the G2M and repair whatever damage there may be. Um, and this is important because the way we treat osteosarcoma, as you all know, is usually through cytotoxic chemotherapy where we're forcibly damaging the DNA. So when we damage the DNA, sometimes these cells actually repair that damage and that's why these cells don't always die off. So one of the ways osteosarcoma becomes resistant to chemotherapy is by relying on the V1 kinase to force that pause at the G2M checkpoint. And so the idea is that if we're able to force osteosarcoma cells with DNA that's damaged through mitosis, without the opportunity to repair themselves, we may actually cause the death of these osteosarcoma cells because the genetic makeup is too, is too, uh, too damaged, too ugly for them to continue on. So that's really the idea behind we one inhibitors. And we one inhibitors can work both by themselves or in combination with other types of therapy. So in the upper row, the row A, um, we see that a lot of cancer cells just accumulate DNA damage over time because they're growing so quickly and that can lead to errors just by themselves. So they then use the cell cycle checkpoint, the DDR pathway to take a pause to repair. We want inhibitors, or fortunately for us, force them not to be able to take that pause and go straight into division with too much DNA damage and therefore theoretically causing the death of that cell. The bottom row is really where we get into the crux of the clinical trial I'm going to talk about, which is that we are priming these cancer cells with more DNA damage than they already have. And we do that either through things like chemotherapy, for example, MAP, 
methotrexate, adriamycin, or doxorubicin, cisplatin, the, 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 the therapies we commonly use in osteosarcoma, or through radiation, which can also be used. And then we force them again to divide by having the we one inhibitor as the backup. And then again, these daughter cells are too unstable and they just kind of die off. So this sounds like a really good idea, but you know, what data do we have? So there are preclinical studies that have looked exactly at this phenomenon, specifically in osteosarcoma. So these are studies that looked at osteosarcoma cells in the, in the lab bench and in culture, and then also in mouse models. And so here we can see that osteosarcoma, um, these cell lines were responsive to to uh, decrease in size as well as actual death of these cells when they were exposed to we one inhibition. And um, it's, a, it's a little esoteric, but I wanna just bring your attention to what these IC50s are. These numbers are really important because these numbers exist in the range where we know that drugs are clinically effective. So this was one of the most important studies that early on showed we one could be an attractive option for treatment. And then the other thing I'll bring your uh, attention to is the P53 status. So null means that they are mutated, so they don't function, what we already discussed with osteosarcoma. WT or wild type is when they're functioning properly. And interestingly, we see that V1 is effective in both of those cell lines. It's a little better if the P53 is mutated, but it's still effective even in normal non-mutated P53 cancers. So this is slightly different because where the prior slide was just talking about monotherapy or just using we one inhibition by itself, this is looking at the combination of we one plus gemcitabine. And we show here that by using the combination of this, we get better results in terms of killing cancer cells. So gemcitabine, it's a chemotherapy drug that downstream from its effects, it causes a lot of breaks and nicks in the DNA strands. So by priming cancer cells with gemcitabine, causing a lot of DNA damage, and then bringing on we one we show that that effect is actually really, really strong. And again, this is the same whether there's P53 is normally functioning or dysfunctional. And so on the right side, we see the difference in size from tumors in blue that were not exposed to any therapy versus in green, those that were exposed to gemcitabine. And there is a shrinkage. Um, when we actually look at those cells exposed to V1 inhibitor by itself, it's a little bigger. So the cells didn't grow quite so fast, didn't grow quite as big. And then really when we combine gem cytobine plus V1, we get this massive difference in size. So this is really the idea behind the whole clinical trial we're gonna be discussing. So I'm gonna shift a little focus now to talk about the trial itself. Uh, this is currently open, again, for patients with relapsed or refractory osteosarcoma. So I'm gonna go through a little about the design, the layout, what we're trying to achieve with this trial and what it may look like for people on the trial and, and who is even eligible for the trial. So this is a very early phase one, phase two clinical trial, meaning this is the first time we are studying this combination of drugs in humans. So the phase one is considered the dose escalation and uh, safety lead-in for the trial. We anticipate about 12 to 18 patients will enroll in that phase of the, of the, the two trials. 
The second phase or phase two is the dose expansion or efficacy phase of the trial. And we anticipate about 60 patients to that portion of our trial. Uh, this trial is eligible for patients who are 12 years or older and who weigh at least 40 kilograms, which is roughly about 88 pounds. Um, and again, they have to have metastatic or relapsed osteosarcoma. And then really the age and weight cutoffs is more has to do with the actual way that the medications are administered and the way we dose them. Uh, this goes into a little more detail about the actual uh, trial layout, but I just want to bring your attention to the fact that all along, we actually have different check-ins during the different stages. And this is because it's such an early phase trial. We want to make sure that we're offering something that seems to be beneficial to our patients. We don't want to continue just enrolling more and more patients if we're finding early on that we're not seeing active potential activity. So that's really important that uh, we only want to continue this if the patients who are on already are getting benefit. And that's so we can really minimize harm. The main objectives of the phase one portion of the trial is to identify what major side effects and toxicities of the medications exist. Uh, the second part of that is to really identify the maximum doses of the two drugs in combination that's safe for patients, what we call the phase two dose. In the phase two portion, we use that phase two dose that we found in the phase one to see how many patients have either improvement, stability, or worsening osteosarcoma on their radiographic scans, the CT scans or the MRI. And we chose 18 weeks because that's the benchmark that the children's oncology group uses, uh, has used historically, and is using in all the trials that are upcoming and that are currently open. There's also a couple of other what we call secondary or exploratory aims. So it's not the main aim, but it's really to help kind of finesse the trial. So these include, you know, what are the clinical outcomes at 12 months? So not just at 18 weeks, but really if patients hopefully stay on this for a lot longer, how are they doing? Um, how are patients feeling when they take these medications in combination? So patient-reported outcomes are measures or questions that patients themselves or their family members will fill out. And it's unbiased by people like myself. So we really get a sense as to how patients are feeling. And the last part is, is one of the most important ones, which is, is there any association between certain molecular changes in the tumor, uh, certain mutations or certain signature? I know in the past people have discussed signature three as one of the hallmarks. Um, so do any of those correlate with any efficacy of treatment we're seeing? What does treatment look like? So the treatment uh, cycles are three weeks or 21 days. And during that time, patients will take Z and C3 every single day. Uh, it's an oral pill. Gemcitabine, on the other hand, is an IV drug. Um, so that's given on days one and day eight of the 21-day cycle. Every six weeks, so every two cycles, we get scans, either CTs or MRIs, to see how the size and number of tumors is changing. Again, this really helps us understand, is treatment helping or not? And Dr. Vitu, how many cycles are there? Is it just until it's so stable, you can continue on it? Uh, that is uh, the way the trial has been written. It's been written to at least one year with more cycles feasible after that. Uh, so the hope is that we're going to start to see that happen and then we can really expand it. That's a great question. Thanks, Christina. Um, so in order to be eligible, um, certain criteria must 
be met. So first, patients must have what we call measurable disease by this uh, RESIST version 1.1. It's a criterion that radiologists use to measure and track the number of tumors. Um, so this way we can mathematically say, is the treatment helping or not? And it's a very objective way of doing it. Patients also have to be healthy enough to tolerate therapy because this is a relatively new therapy. And we want to make sure their organs, so things like their kidney, their liver, their bone marrow, their blood counts, those are all healthy enough to handle treatment. Um, because ZNC3 is a pill, patients have to be unfortunately able to swallow it whole. Although I will mention the company is working on another formulation, uh, hopefully will be ready in a few months. Um, for patients over the age of 18, we are requiring that they allow us to do biopsies of their tumor and potentially of their skin on the surface of their scalp so we can better understand how this treatment is affecting not only their tumor but their body. Um, of course, this is only going to be done if it is safe to do so. Um, and then like all cancer-directed therapy, we know that this could have dangerous effects on pregnancy, so we do require contraception while you're on the trial. Um, and then one of the things that we, we really fought for and were able to get is that patients can have any number of prior therapies. So just because you've had two therapies or three therapies, it doesn't matter. You are still eligible. Um, and if you've seen gemcitabine before, you're still eligible for this trial. Um, so a couple questions here, Dr. Yeah. So for the tumor biopsies, what, what is the anticipated frequency of that? So just once during the um, during the protocol itself. So around cycle one, you're going to be getting a tumor biopsy, um, and that's really to understand, you know, how has the tumor environment, the cells that make up the tumor, how have they changed in response to being exposed to this kind of treatment? Because the hope is we can better figure out who is responding by doing that. The scalp biopsy um, is also just done to make sure we're actually seeing the expected side effects on the whole body that we expect from ZNC3. Again, none of them are dangerous per se, but again, it's for us to make sure we're not causing untoward um, side effects to the body. Got it. So, but so we'll learn, there'll be a biopsy uh, prior to starting treatment and at some point post treatment? Correct. Exactly. So, the prior biopsy, that's a great point. Uh, if you have tumor that is readily available. So usually we say about six months prior to coming on this trial, you actually don't need a pretreatment biopsy. But if you, for some reason, don't have enough tumor because it, other tests have been run on it or you know for other reasons, um, then we do require a fresh biopsy prior to treatment and then one on treatment, just as, as Christina mentioned. Okay. And um, just another question too about measurable disease. So. Um, for example, if you do have, let's say, multiple nodules, um, as long as you keep one, and is, is there any kind of minimum in terms of measurement? Great um, point. Assuming, like you could have some resected, obviously in the patient's best interest, and then, but perhaps keep something that seems smaller uh, as a way to kind of monitor um, response. Exactly, and this is this is a, a, a point we've discussed um, at length. Uh, one of the the subtleties I, I will mention is if your tumor just exists in the bone, sometimes that's really hard to measure. So we don't know whether treatment is helping or not. And because this is a new therapy, we definitely don't want to cause harm. So if you just have tumor limited to your bone, we'd rather you get treatment that we know for sure is going to be effective. Again, the hope with this is that it will be effective, and 
you know, unfortunately, when this tumor recurs, as, as most of the audience will know, this occurs in the lung. And so measurable disease is usually readily, easily met. And just as Christina said, uh, if one of them is causing you problems, we can either cut that out or radiate it. So as long as there's something we can monitor over time, uh, that's sufficient for enrollment. Great questions. Um, so I, I think one of the other important things is what can you expect? Because this is such a new trial, we don't fully know, although uh, this drug is being used in other trials, so we have a sense from those trials what to kind of expect. In general, uh, with this combination, we are anticipating that patients may feel a little more tired than if they were not on treatment, that their blood counts may be a little lower, especially when they're getting the gemcitabine, um, that we may start to see some liver inflammation, but that that should also get better. And then there is always that concern for nausea and vomiting. And, and the good thing about that last point about the nausea and vomiting is we have a lot of medications these days that can really help minimize that so people are able to stay on trial um, uh, in general. And, and Dr. Victor, most of these side effects primarily, do you know if they're driven mainly by the gemcitabine versus the, the WE inhibitor, the WE1 inhibitor? You're asking all great questions, Christina. Um, so in general, the liver inflammation, um, uh, we think is, is going to be by the gemcitabine, but the question is whether the ZNC3 itself may make that a little more worse or make, may make that more common. Um, we do know gemcitabine itself is, is really known for dropping your platelets. These are the parts of the blood that help you clot off so that if you nick yourself accidentally, you're not bleeding uh, a lot. So that's what those, those are responsible for making sure we don't bleed out. We do know gemcitabine really lowers those. And the question is, does combining it with ZN3, does that make it worse? And then of course, the other cell lens is always a concern with any type of chemotherapy. Um, so... I don't necessarily know that we're going to see a whole lot of new stuff, um, but it may be a worsening of, of what we already know it can happen with any type of chemotherapy. But again, um, you know, this is a relatively new drug, so we're very careful and thoughtful to make sure we're capturing anything that could be a side effect. Great. I, I have a question as well. Um, so you mentioned that one of the potential side effects is inflammation of the liver. And although it is a rare side effect of some immunotherapies, um, would somebody who uh, has had drug-induced hepatitis like myself be eligible for this uh, trial? Oof, the, the, another very, very tough question. Uh, in general, Mia, as long as the liver is healthy again, um, so a lot of livers will eventually recover because thankfully the, livers is one of, uh, the liver is one of the few organs that can really recover and recuperate. Um, so as long as there are certain criteria, we look at some of the blood markers of liver irritation and inflammation, as long as they are below a certain threshold, we say it's safe. So you don't have to have a perfectly normal liver, but we wanna make sure because these drugs are cleared through the liver that it's healthy enough that it can do its job. Great, thank you. Okay. So then we look at criteria that would probably make it unsafe for patients to enroll, so the other side of things. So uh, if you have received any cancer-directed therapy, whether that's surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, or some other type of medical therapy, we want to make sure we wait about two to four weeks before starting this trial because we want to get 
all of those other effects of those treatments out of your body to really allow that body to heal. Um, so the other things, uh, some of these are, are very rare, thankfully, but if there's active brain tumors, um, that is a reason why we would say it's probably unsafe. And, and you know, in osteosarcoma, thankfully, this doesn't often go to the brain. Um, heart failures, especially if it's affecting your daily living, so you're unable to walk, you know, a block or, you know, something like that, or there are certain heart conditions where we think the risk is too high. Uh, any active infection, again, like chemotherapy, we do expect that your blood counts will drop and that you're uh, at risk for an infection, so we want to make sure uh, we're aware of that. Uh, if your gut isn't working completely uh, normal, isn't fully healthy, so if you're unable to absorb medications, then really we'd worry you wouldn't absorb the, uh, the ZNC3. Um, if you've been exposed to a prior We1 inhibitor, then we, and it didn't work, we wouldn't want you to go on another one like that. Or if you had an allergic reaction, hypersensitivity, hypersensitivity to gemcitabine, we also wouldn't want to put you in that uh, situation. If you have a second active cancer, obviously we want to make sure we do the best for both of them, and, and this trial would likely not be ideal. And then we also know that there are certain drugs that interact with ZNC3, and, and that's the CYP3A4 inhibitors. Um, so if there's a lot of these interactions, we need to figure out whether the interactions are safe. So um, these aren't all hard. You can come on trial, but we want to make sure we are thoughtful about it. Mm -hmm. And so for cancer-directed therapy, that sounds like it's a pretty, it's an all-inclusive bucket of any other type of intervention, um, surgery, uh, interventional radiology, radiation therapy, anything. So one, one question in particular was about radiation treatment on non-target bone lesions um, would be occur during the trial cycles. Oh, so can radiation treatment on non-target bone lesions occur during the trial cycles? Uh, that great question. And yes, so as long as it's not a target lesion, meaning it's not the lesion we're following over time to see treatment response, we can radiate that. And usually um, your oncologist would uh, flag those lesions for the radiologist to say, hey, this is in a tricky place or they're having a lot of symptoms. Don't use that spot. Use something else. Got it. And then on the prior therapy with a V1 inhibitor, are there other V1 inhibitors out there? There are. Um, there is another product from uh, AstraZeneca out of Assertive. And um, these days, there's always new drugs coming through the pipeline. Uh, but there are other V1 inhibitors in clinical trials, although to my knowledge, uh, not in osteosarcoma specifically. But, but don't quote me on that. Got it. All right. Thank you. Okay. So right now, um, as of today, there are currently five centers in the U.S. that have opened this trial, meaning you are able to enroll if you go, are treated at one of these centers. So Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York, MD Anderson in Houston, uh, UCLA in Los Angeles, uh, the University of Cincinnati in Cincinnati, and then the Sarcoma Oncology Research Center in Santa Monica. There are other centers we are looking to work with throughout the U.S., but um, uh, we haven't quite gotten to the finish line there yet. And then in addition to the U.S., we are uh, opening this trial across other countries, and we've actually received approval from the four countries listed there, so France, Germany, Netherlands, and Spain. Um, so we are hoping that we will be able to open the trial soon there. We've, we've already received approval. That's great. Is there, um, so I know you had your uh recruitment goals for each phase. And is that an overall goal or is there a limit by site? 
uh, it is not a limitation by site. It okay. is, uh, so it's a total goal for all uh, participating centers. Uh, if I can, there's just one um, nuance to discuss, which is that in the early phase, the phase one where we currently are enrolling, um, sometimes we pause enrollment because we want to make sure that the patients who are on aren't having major toxicities, what we call a uh, toxicity waiting period. But usually that's not more than a few weeks at most. So once we get past that, then it's really every slot opens up and we just enroll as we're able to. Okay, so with that, I do just have, there's a large, very passionate group of doctors, researchers, and trial experts that's making all of this possible. So I just want to acknowledge them. So these are all my co-investigators um, at all of the sites. And then these are the members uh, of which there are only, uh, there's many more, but uh, members from Zentalis who've really partnered with us to make this a uh, hopefully good trial for our patients. So with that, I, I do want to thank everyone for this opportunity, but really more than that, I want to thank everyone here for the amazing work you guys do, not only in supporting each other, but supporting the larger osteosarcoma community. And that includes healthcare providers and researchers like myself. So without you, we wouldn't be able to do this. Your faith and support means everything for us. So um, thank you guys. And, and with that, I'm just gonna turn it back over to Christina uh, and, and Mia, and I'm just gonna end this uh, show. Thanks so much, Dr. Bitu. It's always, um, it's so great uh, because this is just another option for patients. And um, what I thought was actually particularly interesting is that um, in terms of eligibility, I mean, it's pretty, open because a lot of times trials will say, well, you can't have been on this therapy and especially gemcitabine, the fact that you could have been on gemcitabine. Um, but so one question though, is there, is there kind of a cumulative toxicity level though for gemcitabine that just because normally that's the case for other chemos. And so it's, it's interesting that you could have already been on it and still be on this again. No, these are all high level questions. And I will say, so to your point, there's certain chemo, for example, like doxorubicin, where we know that taking a certain amount can really put your heart at risk for having damage done to it. Uh, gemcitabine, thankfully, is not one of those. Uh, in, in, in my clinical experience, eventually, so usually multiple years, actually, it, it takes a toll on the bone marrow. Uh, but one of the reasons why we decided to allow prior gemcitabine treatment on this trial is really the key player here is not the gemcitabine. It's actually the we one inhibitor. So the ZNC3 is carrying the majority of, of the punching to the cancer, if you will. This, the, we're using the gem one primarily for, uh, for um, priming the damage to the cancer. And we chose gemcitabine because not only our group here at Memorial Sloan Kettering, but a couple of other researchers found that when we combined a we one inhibitor with a variety of different chemo, gemcitabine was the one that boosted the effect of we one the most. Got it. So just a quick follow-up to that. And I think you kind of answered my next question really, which is, um, so if you had been on gemcitabine and you, know, you, you had recurrence after obviously, your cancer didn't really respond to the gem. So I was just curious, does that minimize the probability of success on this trial? But it sounds like you're really just using it as the priming and it's really the, the ZNC3 that's doing the heavy lifting. Exactly. I, I, that is 100% true. And, and I will say one of the other interesting things about gemcitabine, while it is an active drug for a lot of different sarcomas, 
gemcitabine isn't one of the more common ones we use for osteosarcoma. So usually if you're reaching for gemcitabine, you've run through a lot of the ones we know are really good for osteosarcoma. So we are hopeful that we will capture or we will have this as an option for patients before they're getting to that point. But again, because GEM is really being used here to cause DNA damage and not for anything else, uh, we don't anticipate that prior exposure to it will mean that it's not gonna be effective in this setting. Of course, that's a question we'll have and, and we don't know that for sure, but biologically at least, we don't anticipate that being a problem. I have a great question that came in, but first I just wanna say that it's great uh, that we live in such a small world. I know osteosarcoma is such a rare cancer, but Dr. Noah Fetterman is my oncologist. Um, so definitely a small world. So shout out to UCLA. Uh, anyway, um, a great question came in. Is there any indication from genetic profiling uh, that may indicate the effectiveness of WE1 inhibitors? Another really, really good question. So the bottom line is we don't quite know. So there are certain types of cancers where we know that certain mutations or certain changes in the tumor really imply either sensitivity or resistance to certain things. Because we one inhibition is such a new concept these days, we don't fully understand. Uh, but at least uh, the preclinical data, again, suggests even when P53's normal functioning, normal in the G1S checkpoint is normal, we're still seeing efficacy. So I anticipate that while the effects may not be as good, we should still see some effect again. And this is all hypo, I mean, we're hopefully gonna bear this out in our trial. And that's also why we are you know, asking a patients to give us a little of their tissue so we can understand, oh, you know, for these patients who have these markers, this is a really good trial. Or if you have this, please don't come on this trial because we know it's not gonna help you. Um, and uh, Dr. Vitu, I wanted to just ask, and you had kind of referenced this, that um, we had Dr. Jane Wei and Dr. Forrest on a few yeah. months back presenting on the um, Olaparib and the Serolacertib trial um, mm -hmm. that also targets DNA damage repair. And if you can maybe just um, kind of give us a kind of compare and contrast and kind of how these are different. and. Um, since they are trials that are both open, if, if for patients that are kind of trying to figure out what's the right trial for them, um, kind of breaking that down a little bit for us. Absolutely. So uh, I, I know Dr. Janeway and Dr. Forrest, they're a wonderful team and it's a wonderful trial. I think it comes down to some of the nuances in the way the trials are written. So for example, in, in the trial that Dr. Janeway has open, uh, they do allow surgery on trial. Right now, the way this ZNC3V1 trial has been written, um, unfortunately, you are not allowed to go through for surgery unless we're in an emergency situation. And the idea being, if we remove all tumor, we won't know whether this is effective or not. Whereas her trial does allow for those kind of nuances. Again, um, I, I'm not too, too familiar, but I, I think that is the case. And then there's also some other things. So um, while both of them use the idea of the DDR pathway, I think both of them use different combinations. So in, in Dr. Janeway's trial, you're using two different DNA damaging responses. And, that, and that's because there's data to show that those could be effective really well together. This is taking a slightly different path in which we're forcing DNA damage onto cells and then causing them to be unable to uh, 
uh, not repair themselves. So slightly different parts of the pathway were affecting. Um, and that's why we actually did not preclude other DDR inhibitors because we know there's a lot of interest in DDR inhibitors in the entire community. So we wanna make sure just because you've seen one type, it doesn't mean you're ineligible for all the other types because we don't know that being on one means that you're not affected by the others. The same idea why we tried different types of chemo, even chemo, even though chemo affects similarly. Got it, thank you. And I have a quick question about side effects. So a lot of TKIs specifically have skin side effects. Um, are you into, are you anticipating with this trial any, you know, rashes on the hands and feet? And do you anticipate that with the ZNC3? Great question. Um, so just as you said, the TKIs drugs, so things like regorafenib, cabosantinib, which I'm sure people have heard of or potentially even been on, um, those are known to cause a lot of potential skin side effects. We don't anticipate that with CNC3. Um, again, we're learning, but um, it is not in one of the expected ones. Thank you. And then another follow-up question to that. Uh, do you expect patients will require new lasta while on this trial? Like, I know it can drop the white blood cell counts and yeah. <laughs> Another good question. And I know some people have strong feelings about new lasta because of the bone pain that can come from that. As of right now, the way the trial is written, it does not uh, force patients to use Nulasta. The option is there if we're finding that it's necessary. So there is the chance you may need it, but we don't anticipate that that's going to be common for everyone. And um, I had some questions too about uh, treatment. I mean, the nice thing is that uh, the trial is going to be open at a lot of sites across the country. Um, but it looks like you just have to be there day one and day eight for the actual gemcitabine infusion. The ZNC3 is PO, so you can kind of take that mm -hmm. on your own, right? And then you need imaging every six, six weeks. And the biopsy sounded like it was pretty just at the beginning and sometime yeah. later. So um, a patient could potentially be just come in to the, to the, the institution for the day one and day eight and for imaging but then kind of just be at home doing their own thing. That is our hope. When we, okay. when we designed this trial, we wanted to try and make it as available to everyone as possible. And, and that's also why we were trying to be uh, proactive in choosing sites, not all clustered in one area of the country. Um, I will say early on, so especially in the first two cycles, again, because this is such a new trial, we do ask that occasionally you may have to, so for example, in cycle one, on day 15, even though you're not getting any IV chemo, you do need to come in for labs just to make sure that cycle one is going smoothly for you. Um, but the hope is that after, you know, really the first, second cycles, um, if you so were wanted to, you could definitely leave the area of the, of the trial. Um, and I, I think that's reasonable. Uh, you know, we're hoping side effects aren't so bad that people can still go to school, go to work, do whatever it is that they want to do. We want to support them through that. And so um, so after that first uh, day 15, subsequently labs could be done at their home institution? Um, it's a little tricky okay. because this is a clinical trial. Yeah. Um, the labs and imaging have to be done at one of the institutions that has the trial open. So, uh, you know, it just as Mia said, you know, 
um, now UCLA is open, but you know, had they opened a little after we did, we could have started things off and then you know turned everything over to UCLA. So theoretically, you could use different sites as long as they have the trial open. And speaking of the trial being open, uh, oh, if a patient is interested in enrolling, what are the next steps that they should take? Yeah, uh, so it's really reaching out to any one of the investigators. Um, you know, you can reach out to the centers and just uh, say that you have enough, that you are a patient or you have a family member who is a patient with osteosarcoma and ask to be screened for their trial. As I mentioned, we are still in the phase one portion. Um, so as soon as we identify that there is a patient interested or potentially eligible, we actually reserve a spot for them so that they're not left wondering, you know, do I have a spot available? Once we kind of get through this early phase of it, it becomes less stressful because there's going to be a lot of spots open. But it's just really reaching out to one of the centers and contacting one of the investigators. Um, how many patients do you currently have enrolled in phase one? Can you hear that? So, um, I believe we have five patients enrolled actively on the trial. Okay. So uh, you won't be the first one, uh, but you will be one of the very first ones. That's awesome. And once a patient is enrolled, uh, what is the estimated timeline to start of treatment from time of enrollment? Great question. Some of that has to do with how quickly we can arrange for screening tests. So like your baseline CT scan or MRI, how quickly we can get tissue. So if you are being referred to a center where this trial is open, um, you know, as much as we like to minimize red tape and bureaucracy, I think everyone knows that, you know, it can take a little bit to get tissue read and all of those things. I will say we don't have a central review necessarily of pathology, which will hopefully um, speed things up a little. Uh, but usually I've found that as soon as I identify a patient, um, the sponsor is readily engaged and usually within a few days we'll have a sense as to whether they'll be eligible and within uh, as long as logistics aside we can get them on pretty quickly. Great, thank you. Uh, and another quick question. Um, I know that you mentioned that patients really can't have surgery unless it's in kind of like an emergency situation. Um, in this trial, are patients excluded if they need interventional radiology procedures like an extra port placement or um, an ablation, stuff like that? Great question. So uh, for any procedural stuff that is like a port placement or an IV line placement, absolutely not. That is, that's completely fine. Uh, for ablation, again, as long as it's a tumor that is not the target lesion, then that would be fine. Uh, we just, because... Uh, target lesions are the only way we know whether it's effective or not, we wouldn't want to touch a target lesion. Now, if we had to, of course, we're going to do what's in the best interest of our patients to keep them safe. That may mean that the patient may have to come off trial, but if that's what is needed, that's what's needed. Great. Thank you. So just to clarify, the, the when you had talked about the surgery, so any intervention, as long as it's a non-target lesion is okay. Is that correct or no? Uh, theoretically, I think okay. I'm just trying to remember the language of the protocol. I okay. believe that should be okay. Of course, it's an ongoing discussion. So, you know, there's always nuances to the, uh, to the decisions we make. So if we find that we can spare the target lesion and still keep the patient safe, then theoretically, they should be able to continue on the trial. Okay, great. 
Um, and then we had a question um, come in about um, slightly related. So will irradiated non-targeted lesions be biopsied to understand why they're not responding, especially if the targeted lesions should show benefit? Uh, it's a great, great thought. Um, so just as, uh, as you're suggesting, it would be really interesting for us as the researchers and, and, and on the clinical trial to know why a spot didn't respond if other spots are responding. So while the trial itself doesn't require a biopsy, if the investigator or the oncologist who's taking care of that patient feels that a biopsy of that site would be safe, we would love to have that information because it would help us better understand why it didn't work, and especially if other spots in the body it is, are, are shrinking or are stabilized. Okay, great. Thank you. Just a little bit more of a fun question. Uh, what are you most excited about for Factor? Ooh, um, so I, I, you know, I think a lot of people say this, but really when I get to meet patients and families, that's, it, it just makes everything worthwhile because, you know, there's so many road bumps along this way, you know, a lot of red tape, you know, sometimes treatment doesn't work. So to come back and see people's passion for supporting one another, I think it makes everything I do worthwhile. Even on the worst days, if I can remember that, it just gets me through. Um, I fully agree with you, Dr. V2. I do as well. And then we had another good uh, uh, question come in. Uh, when do you anticipate phase two starting? I know that you already have five patients in, enrolled and I know it's very early to say. Yeah. Wow. Um, Any anticipation of a start date? I think it just depends on how many patients were able to get enrolled. Uh, like all things in life, things, things seem to come in waves. Um, so for the first few months, we, it was a little slower, but now we've really picked up. Uh, the anticipated accrual for the study is around two years. So that hopefully gives people an idea that we're hoping to move to phase two pretty quickly. Great, thank you. All right, Mia, do you have any other questions? Uh, I was checking to see if any other questions. You were, you were such an efficient answerer. I... <laughs> <laughs> well, and especially when you were going through the first part, I'm like, I wish I hadn't in high school. <laughs> been, maybe I would have actually understood biology. I know. <laughs> no, I, total blast from the past. I, it was great. I loved it. Um, it's great, great to refresh, you know? <laughs> exactly. It just means you guys had good teachers that primed you well, and then I just happened to tickle that part of your brain that remembers it. Yeah. Oh yeah, always important to go over the cell cycle, especially especially when you're studying cancer. So, <laughs> um, no, that was great. Thank you. Everything was um, super clear, and um, and thank you just also for giving us the background on kind of how how the, the cell cycle and the DDR and and all that works because um, that definitely helps. Um, and super hopeful um, about this trial. That's great. And thank you so much for spending an hour with us today, of Dr. Course. We really appreciate it and appreciate everything you do um, to make it better for AYA sarcoma patients. Um, and uh, we will have more information about this osteobites with Dr. Butu um, on our website, also on our YouTube channel, 
and we will also have it um, in your favorite podcast place. You can check it out on uh, Anchor Podcasts, but really anywhere you go to find your favorite podcast. And if you registered for the session, we'll make sure that um, you'll get an email with any information mentioned today. And next week, we'll be talking with Dr. Brooke Bernhardt from Baylor College of Medicine. She'll discuss predictive tool for methotrexate clearance, um, mtxpk.org. It's designed to help clinicians understand the pharmacokinetics of high-dose methotrexate, especially with regards to delayed clearance. And um, we pop to the registration link um, in the chat if you want to go ahead and register for that. Thank you again so much, Dr. Butu, for your time today. And thank you, Mia, for joining us today. And as always, for all your excellent questions. Um, and thank you to everyone for joining us on Osteobites today. We hope to see you next week when we chat with Dr. Bernhardt.